0: Well, I was here. I mean, I was here in the 60s, too. Yeah. Um, I was here with my family in 67 and 68. In 1976, my twin brother and I came to New York on a loft jazz and basic jazz pilgrimage, staying with a family friend. And uh, that was when I thought this was like the place for me, really. But life took another direction yeah. for me. A lot of water under the bridge before I finally made it here. God, the late 70s. Like, what a wonderful time to be
1: downtown doing, you know, improvisational jazz music.
0: Yeah, we went to hear, you know, music at the Tin Palace on the Bowery, Loft Jazz around the corner from there, upstairs, Studio Infinity, which was uh, where Stanley Crouch and David Mm. Murray were holding forth, but when Stanley was still uh, interested in. The avant-garde. We went to a place called Environ that was run by a pianist named John Fisher, and and then went to a couple of events as part of Newport in New York. So we went to the Herbie Hancock retrospective and the tribute to John Coltrane with Elvin Jones and Elvin Jones band and uh, McCoy Tyner's band. Um, I went to Boomers, uh, heard some hard bop. Bradley's was I think happening then for sure, but I didn't go into Bradley's, and that was literally around the corner from where our family friend now lives. At that time he was at Bleecker and Grove Street. So 76, how
1: old would you have been at the time? 19, I think. 19? Okay, and you were already ready you were all in on this jazz thing? Yeah. You were ready to uh
0: to just do that. Well, I didn't think I could make it here, but I just liked it here and I liked what was happening, you know, in in the 80s I thought of seriously doing it, but I got married and it just wasn't possible to bring my wife to New York and have me struggle to try to make it here and she had had a traumatic head injury four years into our marriage and things took a a slightly less adventurous turn in in terms of me traveling a lot for a while for example you know I was playing with Julius Hemphill by then Mm -hmm. and Charlie Hayden I did go to Europe with Julius three times in the 80s um, but mostly I was working retail jobs for 18 years what point did you actually were you actually able to sort of like fully make the leap and do this full-time 1998 although I wouldn't say I was really making much of a living yeah. it really started when I joined Wilco. <laughs> That's crazy. And I
1: was almost yeah. fifty. You've been doing music for much longer than that. It was just sort of a, a
0: side thing for a number of for a few decades, I guess. Well, I mean, it was my my main thing in my mind, but yeah. I just couldn't make a living. There's no way, especially I didn't want a job with any responsibility, <laughs> so I could go off and do these little tours. So you know, for example, in 1995, I toured uh, rather extensively with Mike Watt. That's how I met the Geraldine Fibbers and ended up touring with them in 96 as a sub for their guitarist, Daniel. Mike is how uh, you ended up with your wife as well. Yeah, uh, it is. Yeah, There's <laughs> a, a lot of
1: gifts from Mike Lott. Yeah, he's a know, very he's generous, a, generous man.
0: Punk rock Cupid because that's how I met Carla Bosilich, uh with whom I was, uh, I guess, you know, a partner for – well, we were together for eight of the 12 years that we were sort of – a couple. that happened a little later uh, after playing with the Geraldine Fibbers. But so I was able to tour and then still get my job back. But uh, it wasn't something I could do full time. And in 1998, I stopped doing the day job and I had this little tiny publishing deal. So I was getting $1,300 a month of fake BMG publishing money through a a boutique publisher called uh, M3. But then that ended after like nine months. (laughs) You were writing songs for people? I was supposed to be their uh, instrumental composer in okay. residence. Supposed to be. Yeah. Nothing really ever happened except I got fake money. <laughs> it was, uh, I thought it like was $1,300 $1 I mean? a month. I thought I was doing great. Yeah, It's an advance on something you might make. You I know? see. And there was an, uh, an advance. In fact, the lawyer that I saw about the deal, which was completely cut and dry and I didn't need a lawyer, it turned out, was an incredibly high, high-powered entertainment lawyer here in New York City, recommended to me by Steve Shelley of Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. So it's just one of those.
1: Why was it so difficult for so long to to make a living? You know, obviously you were in around these bands who, like Sonic Youth, other people who were able to survive
0: okay. on that. I mean, I think the main reason was I was in Los Angeles, to be honest. Even though it's my hometown, and my dad's hometown, and there's music industry out there. Yeah, but I wasn't really a session player. Okay. You know, I wasn't interested in that kind yeah. of work.
1: It seems like something you could have done if you had put your mind to it. I mean, you have
0: the chops, right? I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I I'm versatile, yeah. but I don't know if I was so interested in being versatile at yeah. that time, you know. I mean, I was versatile enough to play with Mike Watten and play acoustic chamber jazz or whatever, but the session scene is a whole universe unto itself, a microcosm of different kinds of individuals. I was striving to play creative music Mm -hmm. and then ended up playing with Mike Watt after sort of befriending Thurston Moore and uh, between Thurston and my friend David Crouch who was managing Rhino Records where I used to work for years they kind of brought Watt and me together when Firehose was disintegrating and I got there all of a sudden I was back playing rock and roll but I had sort of promised myself I wouldn't do it anymore. I'd been in a band in Los Angeles called Block for almost eight years and signed and dropped and all that stuff and unhappy with that. And so I thought I'd been screwing around too much. And especially when I went to my uh, friend and actual uh, musical mentor, uh, John Carter's funeral. and, And, you know, there I was with my really long hair and girl's headband and probably nail polish and just thought, you know, the hell am I doing? And then a few years later, I was playing rock and roll again with Mike Watt. It was really fun. So that first time, it sounds like you were trying
1: in earnest to break it as you know, as a, as a popular musician in a way that you know
0: you hadn't before or after. Well, then that was a weird thing too because I'd only been playing. Instrumental music, primarily, uh, except for junior high school, where my brother and I had a band that played some cover songs, but yeah. a lot of instrumental jams. That was my main interest, and my brother's main interest, and we got interested in jazz and jazz rock and progressive rock in 1971, 72, when we joined when we went into high school. Mm-hmm. the The band Block happened because uh, my friend Stuart Liebig, who's still a friend of mine, great bass player, was starting a band that he wanted to have be, I guess, a common a combination of funk and, and I guess, a kind of progressive rock thing. And, and I was wanting to play music for people who were standing up, not sitting down at that point. Yeah. Uh, and the same five people stayed in this band for almost eight years, but it became quite the, I guess, one might say most families are dysfunctional on some level. It was quite the dysfunctional family, but we stuck it out. I was trying to make a living playing music, so I thought, like, well, this is pretty cool, So I stayed with it for a – and I was playing with Charlie Hayden on the West Coast um, and with Julius all at the same time and then working full time in a record store. I mean it
1: sounds like musically a progressive funk band could – be musically fulfilling in a way, right? I mean, at least... It was
0: fun at first. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it wasn't the music so much as the personalities just grating on each other sure. after a while. And I think being a result of being at cross purposes more than you know anybody being you know kind of a messed up individual or anything. It was just that I think we had different goals. And that was what kind of made it impossible after a while. And also people change, like in a relationship. I started getting tired of the fact that all the... Songs in Block at the beginning all w- were forbidden to have two and four backbeats. They were supposed to. There were always these hocketed, super brainiac, crazy, Frog, crazy Mac grooves. Stuff. Well, it was more like you know that song seven 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 ninety three eleven. By the time it was like that kind of okay. thing, even though that's a Lynn drum machine. Yeah, it was really like trying to play like that. So people would come up <laughs> trying to, to play a like set, a robot. Yeah, well, yeah, but still swing. Yeah, you know, just but but kind of complicated. And I I wanted to do some like George Clinton style yeah. four on the floor funk and it was forbidden and then it took us for so long to write original songs cuz it was all democratically written and there was no leader in the band and uh so I started suggesting that we at least on to play as encores uh cover songs mm. and that was forbidden for a long time until I guess the vo- a vote was taken or something so there was tension about that and ironically we became really well known for our cover song and people loved it, but anyway, it was just a lot of doctrine, but with no leader. Do you feel like you were carrying
1: any of that of of your own doctrine at that point? I mean, we all have these things early in our life when we're first starting that lines that we arbitrarily won't cross.
0: Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of those to be honest. I guess because certainly not at at this point. But well, I mean, a really broad palette of interest you know, or if that's the right expression, but but um. Line I wouldn't cross. I don't know. I mean, at that point, I wouldn't have been in a hair metal band. Okay. You know, uh, but I don't have an interest in – I mean, I was dancing around like a maniac on stage, which I, I still move around a lot, but not preening. Yeah. You know what I mean? I wasn't into this preening. You were wearing nail polish though, you said. Well, I, nail I, polish. I, I, that was – yeah, a little later. Actually, <laughs> now, I guess I'm thinking about it. That was probably a later development. That was Pat Smear that – I first first put nail polish on my fingers, I guess. So that was 94. I see. Yeah. It might have been 95, actually. So no, I guess I didn't have long hair anymore. (laughs) I got my – but I did have the girly headbands back then. I was trying to look like Veronica Lake. It wasn't successful. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure for any number of
1: reasons that didn't quite work out.
0: Well, <laughs> I had the hair, yeah. but I wasn't very short, and also I don't have that kind of face, but you know, I could only dream. You felt like as that was sort
1: of coming to its end that you, you thought at that point that that was – the last time you were going to be doing that band
0: thing? Well, not a band thing, a, a rock thing or a pop. Yeah, you know, I was going to go back into uh, exclusively playing original compositions by somebody, by me, by whomever I respect and admire instrumental music with a lot of improvisation, which is kind of what I thought I was going to do in high school for the, my whole life. And that was what my twin brother Alex and I were doing in high school, was our version of basically like you know, John McLaughlin and Weather Report and Mm -hmm. King Crimson. You know, that was kind of our our sound was based around those bits of inspiration and influence.
1: Maybe a little less in fashion by the time the 80s and 90s rolled around.
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, by that time... I mean, I don't think this was in fashion. Certainly, didn't garner sure. us any, you know, big fans in high school. Sure, but the weather report, the weather reported King Crimson
1: certainly had their moments.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, well, I mean, they were successful yeah. in a, in those days, and yeah, and truly, now that you mention it, things really did uh, change, and there was a downturn for a lot of those artists in the Reagan years, because in the '70s and to some extent the early '80s, but in the '70s there were a lot of instrumental hits, not just from so-called progressive rock mm-hmm. bands or even what became known as fusion bands like Weather Report or Herbie Hancock's uh, various groups you think about Grover Washington Jr. Yeah. and Stanley Turrentine and Roy Ayers and, and George Benson before he started singing people were buying these sure, records even like, like Chuck Mangione right? uh, uh, another example yeah. no it's a huge example yeah. I mean he did have a, that woman whose name escapes me right now sing with him and that was a huge huge song I can't remember her name now but I used to listen to Uh, kbca the jazz radio station at this point every day in los angeles and and there was so much of that music once i started working in the record store that was selling like crazy and the record store only sold used and cut out and bootleg records for a long time then became a little more legit this store called rhino records before the record label and uh those were really really popular records they are not just underground popular they were selling Mm -hmm. And, and there was scads there were scads of records of that ilk you know uh instrumental hits and then you know vangelis and yeah uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh wendy carlos yep well, that was early yeah. yeah so yeah people had a lot of interest in instrumental music at that time and i saw heroes of mine like ralph towner and john abercrombie go from playing concert halls in the late 70s to playing jazz clubs in the 80s uh Very suddenly, which was fine with me, except that the jazz clubs were way more expensive. Being in Los Angeles and doing
1: the instrumental thing, you know, it seems like there's a path to be blazed in, in film.
0: Well, I did end up in the 90s, even scoring a couple of really terrible movies, but that's another whole private club yeah. world. Um, my friend Vinnie Golia scored a couple of films that I played on, one of which I actually really find entertaining, and the soundtrack's really entertaining that he came up with it's called Blood and Concrete, a love <laughs> story. Billy Zane and Jennifer Beals. But the ones I scored, you, you're not going to find those anywhere, and they were not really worth watching. So you felt it was a situation where you just really needed to
1: know the right people? The oh right yeah, you to know,
0: I started playing with Mark Isham later <laughs> and Mark is quite the film score mogul at this point. He broke into pl- to scoring films doing alan rudolph's movies and so movies like the moderns trouble in mind these were big independent films at the time and his style which i think lends itself to soundtracks quite well of a kind of techno fusion but smooth with his great trumpet playing and and sequencers and all this is actually a quite a a pioneer of this combination aesthetic, led to him being asked to do a lot of really big Hollywood production movies, you know. And he said the best way to do it is advice to me, which is pretty much impossible to follow, was to find somebody who you have rapport with, who believes in your style, and create a bond that can move forward into this particular director's oeuvre. You know, you just... And yeah. that's how he broke into. it. Now I'm sure he's doing two films at once, probably all the time, nonstop. Why did that seem impossible? Well, I what I really don't get along with film people. Probably <laughs> ultimately, you know, my why my, is that? My few contacts, well, they're they're they don't know anything about music. Yeah. And, and then they always wanted everything changed. Now with a computer, it's easy. But they wanted everything changed once you'd done it. And then the, you have to do some kind of either crazy editing or you have to redo everything because they've just cut the scene differently and don't understand why the music won't fit anymore and, and this kind of imperiousness. And I don't know. I just I always thought I could do it technically and write some music, but having to do the PR part too much... I mean, I'm really a people person, to be honest, but I I, I get impatient or even quite irritable with a certain attitude or ignorance perhaps you could say it's another thing where if I found the right person and he said hey man do whatever you want and, and well, we will do blah, 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 I say okay yeah. fine that's great because who doesn't love movies
1: you do strike me as somebody who thrives in collaboration but the difference True. is that it's sort of two
0: architects building two parallel houses at the same time and then
1: adjoining them later right.
0: something like that yeah, when I think of the experimental films of Charles and Ray Eames and they obviously love jazz yeah. they found somebody in California, probably Bud Shank, I don't know who played on these, if it was like Bud Shank or or um, Buddy Collette, these really cool school jazz scores <laughs> that they used in some of their experimental films. And you know, and Lauren Delmeida played nylon string guitar on some of their experimental films. And it's really charming. And I, I know they must have been friendly with all of these people. They didn't just say like, get me a jazz score, yeah. you know, for yeah. my 10 minute experimental film. And that would be super fun to to be able to collaborate with geniuses like Charles and Ray Eames. You know,
1: it really has to be somebody who the, the spirit of their project has to to match yours. I mean, obviously, you're somebody who enjoys improvisation, and there's there's the, perhaps the opportunity to do that. But maybe, yeah. maybe films don't quite exist in that same way now.
0: I, I think they kind of can. It just depends on who who's the, the filmmaker is and who's the the musician or or composer I did a score I don't know what it sounded like but I remember being asked by a composer named Jeff Rona to mm-hmm. go to this place in Santa Monica which turned out to be where Hans Zimmer had his song factory but he had a little room there and basically he had, was scoring a film kind of one of these uh, coyote ugly kind of okay you know yeah. like 20 somethings in harm's way and doing stupid things uh-huh. or whatever I don't I don't know much about I don't sure. remember what it's called even but but he just had me play, and he sat on the floor with uh, Rack. Electrics was a company at the time, with, with IX at the end, Electrics. And he just sat and manipulated my sound for a couple of hours, and and I got paid. And and to be honest, after doing a couple of Mark Isham soundtracks, it was one of them that got me out of a lifetime of debt because uh, yeah. I had a huge credit card debt that I had incurred during the years that my, my then-wife was –
1: Struggling her way
0: out of of her head injury. And not to go into any detail, things got out of hand, and mostly without me being aware of it. And half of a long story short, I did one film with Mark where it was just me and Mark. And all I was doing was replacing samples and synthesizer sounds, which I also did mostly once for Danny Elfman for a Hmm. movie he scored. And because I can make funny noises, and I love doing that more than trying to play like Larry Carlton on a a soundtrack, which I don't think I could do. Great Um, studio guy, though, Larry Carlton. No, all those guys, Dean Parks and... and uh, and, and certainly, the Wrecking Crew guys are some of my heroes: yeah. Howard Roberts and Tommy Tedesco and Dennis Budimir and Glenn Campbell. Larry
1: Carlton coming in and laying down the uh, the guitar solo for um, for Steely Dan.
0: Yep, yeah. Well, Although I have to say, I'm a Danny Diaz fan, and and he, nobody talks about Danny yeah. Diaz's solos with Steely Dan, which I love. But uh, but anyway, all those guys are amazing. Um, this movie didn't even play in the states. And I really am grateful to Mark for filing with the Musicians Union so that I made considerable money from the Secondary Markets Fund. And this movie, and I think it was called The Highwayman, Hmm. it's a slasher film out in the desert, which, you know, they have no budget if they're coming out in the desert. It did well somewhere. And (laughs) one check wiped out my entire debt. It was amazing. It was amazing. My whole life changed that one day. So I had to thank Mark and Mark's a really great person anyway. As these projects are coming about, you have no idea what ultimately what's gonna come of them and, and it, sometimes you just get lucky. Totally. Well my whole life's like getting <laughs> lucky it feels like, you know. I mean whatever I described that sounds like struggles, I was doing what I wanted. I just it wasn't lucrative. But you know, I had a lot of financial stress. But I knew what I wanted to do since I was twelve. And so that I consider to be actually lucky in itself, even though the obsession with sound or with music making had its painful elements. It's, you know, look, I'm a white dude. You know what I'm saying? I, my parents were supportive of me and my brother doing artistic endeavors. They bailed us out of a couple of gnarly situations that a lot of people never, ever experience, you know, uh, that kind of love and support. So I'm not complaining. Um, I just wanted to keep going, and I did. You probably had
1: opportunity to – I don't know if sellout is the right word. That's the word that they used to use. But you had opportunity mm. to pursue something more commercial, but you were more interested in doing what you wanted to do in that category.
0: Yeah. Well, this band block was as commercial as I think I was going to get yeah. in the in the 80s anyway. And after that, no, I had no interest in uh, – but I have nothing against popular music or, or music that people – listen to for non-musical reasons because it speaks to their lifestyle or or their troubles or their romantic dreams. I mean,
1: you're in Wilco.
0: Uh, That's poetry, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Wilco's a fantastic (laughs) band, but Wilco is a big popular rock band.
0: Right. Well, I didn't, that was an accident, you know. I mean, it wasn't an accident from Wilco's standpoint, I guess, but it certainly (laughs) dropped into my lap out of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. But I had met Jeff... When the Geraldine Fibbers were opening for Golden Smog for a couple okay. of weeks in 1996, but we weren't hanging out or anything. But I sat in with them on the last day of the tour and played On the Beach by Neil, Neil Young. Young. They yeah. had great taste in covers, mm-hmm. uh, Golden Smog. And uh, uh, Jeff remembered that, apparently. I found out later. I made an impression. But also, Carl um of, of the Fibbers uh, uh, stayed in touch with. Jeff and they sort of became distant friends and and mutual admiration society developed and I ended up playing in Carla's band Post Fibbers and we also had a duo called Scarnella for a number of years and ended up opening for Wilco and also if I was in Chicago with Carla playing with her or with my uh, band the the singers he if we needed something he would lend us an amp or a baritone guitar what you know so I went to the Wilco loft and got an amp one day because we were just I don't know what we have flown in for yeah. something. I don't remember what, why I didn't have an amp that day, but so he's very nice. Uh, and then we opened for Wilco, and you know I'd met some of the guys before, but I met them all that that little micro tour that we did in the Midwest with Carla opening for Wilco, and that's when everybody heard me playing like lap steel. And so when Leroy Bach left uh, after recording A Ghost Is Born. I know that Jeff knew he was going to get Pat Sansone. Pat was already John Stewart's musical partner in the Autumn Defense, and he's one of those guys that plays five instruments and sings beautifully and knows 3,000 songs. (laughs) And I don't know why he thought I might be a good addition, but I think Glenn may have suggested me when he and Jeff were talking about something Jeff was looking for to add to the band, so I don't know. I should probably ask... (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I feel like at this
1: point you're at a point where you could ask, you know, before you maybe don't only want to jinx been, it, but
0: it's been 15 years. Yeah. So yeah, uh, and I, to be honest, and, and I'm not saying this is any kind of uh, what Mike Watt would call badge buff. Uh, I'm not, it's not a point of pride, but uh, I had turned down a couple of tours prior to joining Wilco that would have paid my bills. You don't want to and name and any names, no. Okay, <laughs> but I just wasn't interested in the music and i also had gigs that it's sad and funny to think about it now really but for example i remember at one point i got asked to tour for a month kind of at the last minute too which irritated me and yeah and was contacted you probably weren't somebody's first choice maybe not i don't know that's but i did know a couple of people in the group uh and it's a prominent singer songwriter and somebody i respect but also had been sort of warned off on a personality mm-hmm. level. But anyway, it irritated me uh, in the case of at least one of these alleged opportunities that the, the person, him or herself, didn't contact me. You wouldn't even give uh, me a gender. Wanted, I want to know. No. Well, there was a man and a woman. Both you know, kind of thorny but interesting artists sure. and nice people when they're nice. You know, yeah. I ended up being really in very, very uh, – good shape with with one of these people and did ended up recording and became friendly and that mm-hmm. was a whole other story but that was later um, anyway I had a gig with Philip Greenleaf the uh, uh, woodwind player improviser in the Bay Area uh, with whom I'd played on and off mm-hmm. and we had a gig at Yoshi's coming up of doing his strange improv band with GE Stinson and me and uh, I'm trying to remember who the fourth person was but anyway, I couldn't turn. I couldn't turn him down. I'd already said I'd do the gig, so I paid like a hundred bucks, and I had to drive to the Bay Area and play. I was no way I was going to bail on Philip. So that's the way my mind was working at yeah. the time. Why was Wilco a good fit in a way others weren't? Well, for one thing, it, it's been out in the world that I was going to get another day job after. Almost yep. turning 50. And, and it's true. Yeah, at that point in so your, your career, I guess you, you were kind say, of considering d- giving up the ghost a little bit? No, I was going to just get a job and keep playing, but so I could have steady yeah. income and not be freaking out about my $600 rent uh, that I couldn't pay and stuff like that. So yeah. there
1: was never a point, you know, when you were struggling,
0: when you thought you were going to give up music. There was, Actually, but that had nothing to do with money. It had to do with aesthetics. It had to do with my Western dichotomous mindset getting the better of me and my neuroses. Yeah. This was in the eighties and I couldn't, I felt I had to decide between rock and jazz and between acoustic and electric music and on the, on the guitar. I mean, mm-hmm. not exclusively. It was actually driving me crazy you just you, making thought you me couldn't unhappy. do both at the same time or well i had been but i wasn't i felt like for some reason i had to focus mm. and i think there was a fair amount of pressure in, in especially in the late 70s early 80s not so much from the musicians as from the writers writing about music to have some kind of purity and they were kind of protecting the kind of music i liked from pop influences and i was interested in the language of you know blues rock and progressive rock and Effects pedals and whatnot, which because bit, I'm thinking
1: of all this coming on the tail end of like you know like Miles Davis, right? Like getting yeah, influenced by Jimi but, Hendrix and making his his trumpet sound like a guitar, right? But
0: the critics hated that band hmm. and hated that music, and and then Miles disappeared in, yeah. for a while in the '80s, and. Um, did that singing anyway, album? Yeah, you know, that, that came out when he <laughs> returned. Yes, right, Man with the Horn. And uh, uh, I don't know why I was driving me crazy. You know, I was absolutely infatuated with Sonic Youth, and I re- wish that I could have yeah. unlearned everything that I had finally learned because I was a very late starter in terms of learning music theory and certainly I never had a guitar teacher show mm. me anything of worth except finally once a, a diatonic scale and chords the C major D minor E minor I was like oh my god you know that was the most important thing I learned from a guitar teacher I didn't I had two guitar teachers for a very short amount of time both of them moved out of town one of them actually kind of tormented me and and ruined my life in a certain way because of his old school harsh methods mm. and I was a sensitive lad. <laughs> and I just wanted to learn, you know, but but uh but back to the eighties and my thinking I should give up music, I was infatuated with Sonic Youth. I was infatuated with a lot of punk rock and 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 at the same time playing nylon string guitar with mm. Charlie Hayden acoustic chamber music with quartet music, my friends Eric Von Essen and Jeff Gauthier and my brother Alex and we'd been we played together this Configuration for I think about eleven years.
1: I guess I though understand the desire to to focus on one thing, right? To get really good at that one thing and, and yeah. to move in that direction. I mean, I think it
0: was envy of people who have a s- yeah. s- very narrow direction. People who figured it out. In yeah. A way. yeah, and I can't think of too many guitarists that come to mind that are. Uh, maybe huge favorites now. I mean, there are people that I love in the jazz guitar world, mm-hmm. but I didn't think I could be like them, you know. But maybe I thought I should learn bebop. Uh, you know, I should sp- play like Joe Pass or something. I don't know. Pat Martino, I love. I was really interested in all these players. Pat Matheny was really huge for me. And he was in the cracks, kind of, but he could still really blaze on standards. And so I was just thinking about that and at the same time wanting to do music that was basically about sound and more dramatic and even slightly out of tune. So I thought maybe I'll take up upright bass, you know, because I love bass and particularly I I love acoustic bass and, and I love acoustic bass, solo acoustic bass records. I mean, I love acoustic bass and basses. Your solution was to abandon the guitar. Yeah. And then I thought, well, gee, I don't want to drag that thing around. Uh, and it's really expensive, you know, a good bass, outrageous so you know not not that it's not a relatively
1: versatile instrument but talk about kind of painting yourself into a corner (laughs) leaving the guitar and picking
0: up bass. well no but basses when they're when basses when they're good they work man you can't keep a good bassist for long because everybody wants to play with this amazing bass player so maybe i could be an amazing bass player like uh, uh besides charlie hayden who was kind of one of my idols at the time but like bar phillips or uh i don't know who i was listening to so much then um, Dave Holland and, and a lot of the avant-garde guys like Peter Koval maybe or I don't know anyway. were you a Mingus guy oh yeah and well I, yeah but I would never have thought I could sure. play like that that's coming out it's sort of was like that Wilbur where like yeah that's a whole of gut string thing like Charlie was a gut string guy but
1: that would have felt like I Gary mean obviously Gary
0: was big for me
1: but obviously, you know, you've, you, you've got a lot of the fundamentals as a guitar player. So in that sense, maybe not a, a huge leap over to bass, but like in a way would have felt like just completely starting your career over.
0: Yeah. Which is kind of what I think I wanted. Yeah. And I didn't really – what career okay. anyway? But I <laughs> mean enough. the other thing, I made, played on some records and yeah. made some records, but you know. How far did I you thought, get into the bass thing? No, I didn't do it. I yeah, thought okay. like, oh, I can't afford a bass and <laughs> – and uh and it's big and I have to carry yeah. it around everywhere. Yeah. So I thought, what would I do if I didn't play music? And I this, I'm, it sounds humorous now, but I thought, well, I could either be a writer um, or a visual artist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which means I'd be broke, involved with, with solitary endeavors. Were those things that you were doing at all up till then? Were yeah. You, okay. I mean, and my twin brother, Alex, is – uh, going for a degree in visual art. You know, I was a philosophy major mm. at first. That's a whole other story. I love writing and I love writers, and but I love collaborating, as you pointed out. Yeah. And so one of the things I love most about music besides sound is collaboration. Not necessarily just collaboration aesthetically or compositionally or improvisationally, but just having To find people to make music with to make the music happen and then having that happen and you're all together making this music together and on your respective instruments and it's an amazing experience for me. I love it. I don't, I can't get enough of it when there's that commitment and uh, articulation and mind meld and direction and propulsion—it's the best. Do most of the projects that you do that are under your own name or you know one of
1: your project? Do they start as improvisation? Do they start as jamming with someone else?
0: Um, no, no. I uh, usually just write by myself. So there is a solitary element at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have co- done collaborative writing with say with Carla Bosilich where we did Scarnella and we did this record for Smells Like Records and and we went through and tried ideas and then wrote songs in the studio and recorded them and there are improvisations on the record and it's one of my favorite things I've ever done and but my solution by the way to my dilemma oh sure was to start my own band which I'd <laughs> never done I'd always been in these democratic ensembles quartet music was a beautiful one because there was kind of a leader. Uh, who is uh, my friend Eric Von Essen, who was really my greatest musical teacher. He was a multi-instrumentalist composer and he was primarily the bassist in this group. But he played piano and guitar and tabla and was, at one point, picked up chromatic harmonica and became amazing on in a year. And (laughs) I always was privately happy that he never quite sounded good on cello (laughs) because cello was his last instrument he tried to play but but he died in 1997 and he had been through a lot of life changes and we weren't really playing together anymore anyway but i was out with the geraldine fibbers and he was teaching jazz in sweden and just died in his sleep but starting my own trio which was my first group very original name the nels klein trio Mm -hmm. i wanted to call it bartholomew but the two guys in the band basically told me i was insane and that was a terrible name were they right in hindsight yes yeah and uh, <laughs> uh that was 89 yeah. 1989 and so, this so it would have been the year
1: the simpsons premiered oh. and it would have been a band called bartholomew
0: oh geez well matt graining was a customer at the record store he used to come in every friday yeah when the simpsons hit because he all of a sudden had money oh, yeah. and he would buy he went from buying two records on every every friday to like 25 30 40 records yeah he's, he's a, always been a supporter of the arts i will say that about him he's a wonderful yeah. dude yeah really really we're never like tight friends or anything but i have so much respect for him and he's such a delightful person
1: so that bands and, and these bands that you've started in your own name aren't democratic in the same way
0: no in fact i was smart enough or um firm enough to start for example that first trio by saying we we're going to only play my music because I need to do this. yeah, And so that's what we did.
1: Is collaboration fulfilling in the same way when you're really taking the reins
0: like that? Well, because I write for improvisers, you know. So everything I do, uh, especially as I move forward, uh, there was always a piece of music or pieces of music that were improvised uh, primarily. That way everyone has a voice, Mm -hmm. you know. And it's about our chemistry. But if somebody wants to step out and assert him or herself, it's the music allows for that. And then I have other compositions I call my fascistic compositions, where I want very distinct things to happen. And uh, truth be told, I'd say more than half of those just were never fun to play live anyway. Mm. But they were great to record if I got, we got it right, if I got the vibe going, you know, because they're dramatic sometimes and have a lot of little production touches, overlay guitars, and, and they're very scripted. And they're really for me.
1: Was Wilco creatively fulfilling in the same way when you first started, when you were kind of, I don't know, brought on almost as like a ringer from the outside to play this existing body of music? Yeah.
0: Well, I wasn't brought on as a ringer. I joined the band. Sure. For like over a year, they said I was a temporary member. Not, they didn't, but I mean, the press did. Yeah. But oh no, I had joined the band. And but, from, but I guess from, I just mean from the standpoint of like being somebody joining an, an existing band with an oh, existing oh, group of music. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call that a ringer sure. at all. That's like, the, that's a huge commitment for yeah. a ringer. It was extremely collaborative at first especially because Jeff was in rough shape which I wasn't aware of at all mm. and so he went into rehab tour was canceled or postponed I should say um and so we were out- joining
1: this thing and you're like and all of a sudden tour gets canceled and and the wheels start coming off
0: i wasn't worried at all i mean i had a great time playing with jeff and glenn and talking with jeff amazing phone conversations before i ever got to chicago i knew he was going to pull through and and that he was being very brave uh wanting to get out from under his problem Mm. and get his his life together and i was impressed and he's been totally together ever since. Yeah. You know, now it's been 15 years. But it felt collaborative from the start. Especially Sky Blue Sky, because yeah. that was a very group-written album, because Jeff was in this kind of raw state and didn't feel as pr- prolific as he normally is. And I can tell you, uh, like, as I'd been told how prolific he was, <laughs> and I was seeing uh, Jeff at that time and going, wow, you know, well, he's really relying a lot of our ideas, and that's fun, and that was a really fun record to make. And now... Uh, the last few years, he's outrageously prolific, mm. and he writes all the songs on the records because he already has so many. But we're going to uh, probably, looks like we're going to do another record, maybe more in the Sky, Blue Sky, from the ground up all together in the same room all the time, uh, which is harder nowadays because we're everybody's older, yeah, and uh, only two people live and... in Chicago yeah. now. So I never moved to Chicago, but Pat moved to Chicago, and Michael... Uh, Was already there. Um, Glenn's from there. uh, And he's still there. And Jeff's not from there. And he's probably never going to leave. I don't know. I can't imagine. I think he really loves Chicago. And then uh, – Well, and there's me. And I went from Los Angeles to Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. uh, You flew right over. John was in Chicago then too. And so it's harder. But I think we'd like to do it just because it's been this kind of unpredictable – never know exactly – what our role is, kind of thing. It's still really satisfying though, because the end result is something I enjoy listening to. You know, especially this new record. I think it's really amazing. Um, and a lot of it's just ideas that Jeff has that we execute. You know, and he has so many songs. And he helped uh, helped us a lot by having a few that were not quite finished, and a million that were almost completely done. That we basically didn't attack for the most part, you know, so instead he said, here's some rough ideas. What do you think of this? And we're just jumped right in, you know, and then the stuff that was almost finished, sometimes those end up being Wilco songs and we just play on them, you know, it's, there's no pattern, but I don't even know how many songs he has. He's after the warm and warmer records, mm. this new Wilco album, I'll bet he has 40 or 50 songs still that he doesn't know what to do with that are recorded on some, something on his phone or whatever. I mean has we've played yeah. along with guitar tracks that he recorded on his iPhone on the bus on some of some tracks, you know, cuz cuz the it's got a vibe, you know, and it's not even tuned to a tuner or something, so we all have to detune a little <laughs> bit and and then it sounds really cool to it's us. It's a good problem
1: to have to have more songs than you know what to do with. It's better than the alternative. He's phenomenal.
0: I yeah. mean he's just one of those one of those people who who can really write songs. That's just my opinion, but I think it kind of seems obvious. I think that's probably
1: most people's opinion. <laughs> yeah, I think most people have <laughs> probably come around to that way of thinking. Most of the people I talk to in, in bands say that one of the secrets to longevity is that there is, that it is sort of run like a dictatorship, that, that, it, that there needs to be one sort of clear person with with the idea of moving things
0: forward. That works for me. Yeah. I have to say it's, it's uh if it's somebody you respect and they're respectful, yeah. then yeah. I mean, the thing about, about Wilco with the same six guys now for 15 years is that I don't think if it was disrespectful or we all hated each other and all that, like a lot of groups you hear yeah. about that have longevity and they don't ride on the same buses and they're, you know what I mean? I couldn't do it. And I, I have a feeling that most of us would, would just say enough is enough. We, The fact is that we really get along and love playing together, and, and it's so easy.
1: How does that break down when you're married to your bandmate? Well, we're a duo. Is the dynamic that much different
0: when it's just the two of you versus a full band? Well, I mean, the thing about Cup is I guess it's – yeah, it's super intimate. But at the same time, we're pretty experimental as far as – it's kind of like anything goes mm. really. We would love to forge a direction for Cup. Ultimately, maybe on a couple of the pieces on this record that's about to come out, we may have created a, a truly shared sensibility. That's You feel like you're, you haven't quite figured that out? Well, I think that a lot of these songs existed, We were, were written when we first got together, and now we've been together 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and so some of them are like, oh, that's a me song, and yeah. that's a her song, and blah, blah, blah. So I think we're forging ahead to... A, a combined aesthetic and that's something you can do as a duo you know I don't think it's that hard I think it's harder with four or five people or six people than it is with two the uh, the other thing is we're not expecting to go on tour with it as much as Wilco tours there, we can't because I'm in Wilco yeah but also I just don't see that as as the trajectory of Cup you yeah. know I think what we'd like to do is tour when we can sell a few records for our label who've been nice to us and further our music live but The other thing about Cup is that it's really technological. And so, uh, Yuka's got quite a three ring circus going. And so sound checks are much more arduous, nitpicky, whatever. And we don't have, we can't afford our own front of house person. So it's not dialed in with somebody we trust. It's just always this, uh, crapshoot and you walk into a place, uh, and then, we have to set up so much gear, we don't want to move it. <laughs> so you know what I mean? Yeah. So we'd like to play places that aren't rock pads where we're one of three or four bands playing.
1: I think you said this in an interview, you know, I think you might've used the word abrasive to describe some of your
0: sensibilities. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it is once again, wide ranging. Yeah. I think some of the pieces that have, uh, like Ableton drum sounds and they're pretty, they're pretty like banging. They should be pretty heavy, loud, you know, bass heavy, all that stuff. And then other pieces are super delicate. Yeah. And somebody has to be able to figure out how to make it, make that happen for the audience. And uh, the people we know and love and trust are really busy and we're not making any money. So we can't drag them out. So that is uh, something we'd like to maximize, including visuals. uh light design, mm-hmm. it would be really nice because we're just standing there, mm-hmm. um, not particularly interesting to look at, and have something really uh, visually compelling and cool. Because
1: you had described your, your your
0: onstage presence with Wilco and earlier as being a lot more energetic. Why are you kind of stationary during this? Because there's a lot of knob twisting, okay. and I'm singing a little bit, yeah. and Yuka's singing. She's got a headset. I'm not going headset. You know, she's she's doing the f- Britney Spears and Garth Brooks thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Never was oh, Garth Brooks. Yeah, I never – I was going to say never go for full Phil Collins, but, but – uh, uh, Well, he had the drums. He had to do that. When, when he bothered to play them. But yeah, fantastic drummer too. Wow. Also yeah.
1: a, a prog guy, right? Genesis.
0: Oh, I saw him with yeah? Genesis. Yeah. With Peter Gabriel. Was, he's he's a fantastic drummer. Really, really fantastic. He's an incredible songwriter yeah. and musician. It's not always my kind of stuff, but sure. I have immense respect he for him. He writes a great songs. pop song, for he, sure. He does. It's kind of weird. And he sings a lot like Peter Gabriel, which is also eerie.
1: Was singing, was was that tough for you? Was it tough to get in front of the microphone
0: like that? It's it's hard, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to do wordless singing in my acoustic projects when I was in my Late twenties or mid twenties, Just singing was, a melody, or yeah, I was singing. I could sing pretty high, and it was kind of inspired by Brazilian singers like Baden Powell. Or not the high part, but just the idea of using the voice as an instrument sure. came from a lot of Brazilian music I love. And then in the in the rock band I mentioned, Block, which was sort of a funk rock something band, I ended up after a while really writing more than fifty percent of the lyrics uh, for the band, mm-hmm. though I wasn't singing. And we had a woman. Uh, named Camille, who sang, who was, had a real powerful voice, but didn't want to write words. She wrote some words to one song and said, that's it. That's my life story. <laughs> she and ran I'm, out. And I'm a word snob, So, yeah. uh, son of two English teachers. So, uh, And somebody used to write poetry every day. And I'm a real fan of the written word. Then singing became a whole other way of worrying about words. Because I, I reached a point with this band where I was writing lyrics where I basically felt, and also because there were a lot of limitations being put on me that I won't go into by the singer, but I have nothing left to say to the youth of America. That was what I said. Uh, and and so you have to wonder sometimes, well, what are you saying if you're bothering to sing? In the case of Cup, it's, it's mostly just little poems. And sometimes there's the words have a certain double meaning that only you can I are privy to. And that makes it fun. So it's kind of like in code. And then I don't have to worry about it, the message, you know. But back in the 80s and certainly in the 70s, I was thinking about the message, you know. What are, what are we saying? And I was worried about or wondering about what everybody was saying. Mm-hmm. And coming out of 60s counterculture and all that as a young person, uh, I was really immersed in the message, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Now I just don't really care so much. Now I just worry about singing in tune. It could have just as easily have been
1: Instrumental music. Why was it important that the two of you vocalize? It wasn't. I don't. It just seemed
0: like a fun idea. Yeah. It was not. We didn't think about it that much. It was really, a, I guess, you'd say, a natural progression or intuitive, or it was just a. Was it completely cavalier? I don't know. It's. It's and it's not the focal point of the music. It's just sort of happens when it happens, and then there's plenty of instrumental stuff. At this point,
1: as you're circling around this, you know, specific aesthetic for the band, does it feel?
0: that the work is a lot more 50-50 than it was before? I think it's pretty 50-50. It's just, oh, and always has been, mm. just the songwriting part, that wasn't. But the arrangements uh, and just the sound in general, it's, it's. I don't tell Yuka co- what to do very often. Like, oh, that sound, that keyboard sound, I'm not into that. You know, I, I trust her to come up with cool sounds, and she works for hours and hours mm tirelessly mixing things or pre-mixing them for our record and doing all her her production that she's been doing ever since the Chiwamato days when it was mostly samples or all samples at the beginning dj 70 mm. roland sampling keyboard uh, all those songs were just that the original versions um and i think she still evinces this amazing musical sensibility and uh as well as a, being a composer herself. So I just let her, I trust her to yeah. do something cool. And it's, well, that's what happens. But if, for example, the, the title track on our r- record, Spinning Creature, was kind of a last minute addition to the record because I got this idea. And perhaps interestingly, when we decided we had time to record it and we were going to add it to the record, and I'd been on tour a lot with my quartet, and with some other people. This was when Wilco was on a break. She said, okay, let's just sit down and see, what are these chords again? And basically she simplified the Mm -hmm. song by saying, Really? You know, what if? Uh, And then the song became a lot more direct and and no less flavorful because she loves cool chords and chord progressions. But I tend to be, I guess, a little bit um, elaborate or I embroider things too much at times. And so I was happy for that input.
1: Obviously, you know, the way your relationship came out of you collaborating and that you you essentially met when you were in part of a band um but do you find that it's important to draw the distinction between just work and and you know and the time when you're just sort of like alone being a couple do you bring your work home with you
0: well yuka would love to be able to have a uh this situation like we had when we were living in the West Village where she had access to a studio 24-7 <laughs> and then could just walk upstairs and yeah. go to sleep. We don't have that now. So she has a little cubicle in Gowanus, and then we have a place where we live where after 10 o'clock, you better not make too much noise. and Quiet uh, residential Brooklyn Street. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely, lovely living situation, but there are some, some rules. So I think she'd love to take her work home with her all the time and just be able to ne- seamlessly move from... The kitchen mm-hmm. to the studio to the bed to the couch to the to the trash dump to the what do you know what I mean whatever yeah. I like to sort of I don't really care about any of that I I don't ever plug in at home I when I write a piece of music I could do it anywhere I just need a guitar to make sure what the notes are and I I don't even need peace and quiet necessarily it's helpful certainly but generally when I'm home and right now I'm on tour so much and we have this gig coming up it's almost feels like a bummer to me to have to say we need to work you know let's yeah. do it let's do it we got this gig coming up because i'm leaving again on sunday for and i won't see her for over a month so it's uh the tour is not a, over a month but are just she has to go to japan and i'm going to join her there <laughs> and see family and so it's going to be a while and um so i treasure all this time basically sitting on the couch <laughs> you know like you know trying to see if we're going to be lucky enough to see season three startup of norsemen or something <laughs> i don't know Though. So we're not we're not workaholics. Yeah. Like a lot of people think I am because I'm productive, but I tell you, man, I'm not. I am not. I get a lot of sleep. I just happened to put out a lot of music and half of, of that seems accidental. Like this record that just came out by the Radical Empathy Trio on ESP Disc called Reality and Other Imaginary Things uh, with Tom McDonough and Michael Wimberly and me. It's just a, a live thing we did at Pioneer Works and it was a good recording and Tom said, what do you think? And you know, ESP Disc said, yep. And so we have a record just like the one with me and Larry Oaks and Gerald Cleaver on Clean Feed. They're live recording. They were interested. There's another record. So I'm on a lot of records, or, or you know, like Joan Osborne records, mm. where I come in and play on a few songs, or just sometimes I'm the guy that comes in. I don't know why this happens so often. A singer songwriter friend, uh, is making a record or a friend of a friend and I go and I end up being the last guy to record on this record right before they're mastering. Or in the case of when I played on a couple of tracks on this low album called Come On, which is incredible honor to me because I'm such a low fanatic. He he and the producer, uh, Alan Sparhawk and the producer, whose name is Matt, and I I can't think of his last name. He was the son of one of the guys in America. They were already mixing in an apartment in Studio City, California. And I just came into the apartment and they just backtracked and put up some faders and, I, you know, the off I went and then we had some Mexican food and I went home.
1: In a very roundabout sort of way, you did kind of
0: become that studio guy. It's true. It's weird. But I feel almost maybe more at peace with my versatility now. And I think that has a lot to do with Wilco because I tend to be not the avant-garde guy when Wilco's recording, mm-hmm. for example. And certainly on the early Wilco songs where basically Jeff. Never told me what to play. You know, there's a guitar solo here, so I play a guitar solo. Yeah. I don't immediately go Arto Lindsay, no. you know, playing that solo. I want, I'm hearing a kind of classic wailing something, not a wheedle Weedle necessarily, but although maybe I do that, but just a rock solo. And you have an idea of what Wilco is and should be when you're coming yeah. into that context. So I'm tapping into this kind of this 14 year old me sensibility wise. Um, certainly, technically, I couldn't do that when I was 14 because I used to play with two fingers and I hardly knew any chords. I mean, I didn't even know how to tune the guitar when I first mm. started playing. I find it extremely satisfying to do what the song seems to want, you know. And, and in recording over the years... Jeff pulls all kinds of wild stuff out of me, but it's never my first impulse. My first impulse, I think, is sometimes almost annoyingly reverent to the song in a kind of conservative way. And sometimes that's just because I'm assessing the harmonic content, uh, learning the song and the mood of the song. And the mood then tells me that it's sort of related to another kind of song, similar song. Mm -hmm. And then I think... uh, Oh, yeah, like a like kind of a, a high and lonesome lap steel thing in the background with a lot of reverb. I've done that already. Jeff, yeah. Jeff doesn't want to have the same thing all the time. Like, well, that worked before, but we don't have to do that today. You know, that's kind of the way he is.
1: That was Nils Klein. CUP's debut record, Spinning Creature, is out now. Thanks so much to Nils. Thanks to you, as always, for listening to the program, I hope. Uh, doing well with all that's going on out there um we've uh, got a bunch of these shows lined up so we'll we will be bringing you the program weekly as per usual uh until this whole thing dies down not gonna plug my stuff because uh there's uh, bigger stuff going on in the world right now but uh stick around because we're gonna be back just about this time next week with another episode of riyl